Father, everything we have comes from you. Um, Without your generous hand, without your generous heart, uh, we have nothing. So, Father, we're grateful uh, for the joys that you allow us to experience. Uh, Lord, we're also grateful for the hardships that come from you, that teach us to depend on you. So would you teach us during this season, Father, to look to you, to look to uh, our provider uh, of our needs. Lord, would you send people's thoughts and minds to Christ, to their greatest need that they'll ever have, that they would reach out for your mercy in Christ. Would that be something that happens this morning for all those uh, listening across the nation, across the globe this morning? Uh, Would you remind us of your fatherly love for us in Christ through the preached word this morning? Would you help Richard this morning speak bold truths that will not just uh, land on our ears or on our minds, but would penetrate our hearts? Father, he's only human, and so he needs supernatural power right now uh, for your words to to change us, to penetrate our hearts, to melt our hearts. So would you use these simple words this morning to change lives, change relationships and marriages. Oh, God, it's, it's so difficult right now. So many strained relationships. And you're the only answer. So would we look to you this morning? We love you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Yeah, and a big time amen. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Ben. Wow. So terrific today was this music and worship. 2013 moviegoers around the country packed into theaters to watch a drama unfold in outer space in which... Astronaut Mount, Matt Kowalski, played by George Clooney, and Dr. Ryan Stone, a first-time space traveler, played by Sandra Bullock. Unleash a drama in outer space. The movie was called Gravity. It begins with a simple mission to repair the Hubble telescope, but a seemingly routine spacewalk ended in disaster when space debris destroyed the space shuttle and All of a sudden, only tethered to each other, the two astronauts were spiraling through outer space 372 miles above Earth, facing a grim outcome. Toward the end of the movie, Dr. Stone loses all hope and she voices these words, I'm going to die today. No one will mourn for me. No one will pray for my soul. I've never prayed Nobody ever taught me how. I am so thankful that even as I was walking up here today, I got a text from a dear friend that says, you are covered in prayer. The greatest gift I can ever, have ever, will ever get is to know that you, church, here locally and around the world, are praying for me. Mark McGahey says in his blog this week, people who know how to pray must teach people who do not know how to pray. 
how to pray. As we obey Christ, make disciples all over the world, the number one thing that we ought to be able to do with a disciple is to teach them how to communicate with God. If discipleship is anything, it's teaching people how to pray. If we get anything right, it should be that. If we miss anything, it can't be that. The greatest gift that people have done for me is to model in my hearing how to communicate with God so that I can reshape my words after the pattern that I I hear in them. Today we're going to look at one of the greatest prayers in the Bible of of how to pray. If I were praying for revival today, I might go to Daniel chapter 9, but if I'm praying for my church, Hope Point, I'm going to Ephesians chapter 3, maybe Ephesians 1, sort of a, a tie there, but I think if I had to pick, it's Ephesians 3. I love the way Paul writes heavy doctrine through these letters, and he's just He's just saturating us with theological truths. And in the middle of all of his letters to the churches, he often stops and just breaks into prayer for the church. He's just like he can't teach anymore. He says, i got to pray for you. I don't want to just teach you. I want to pray for you. I just want to read the prayer to you. And we're going to look at it for a couple weeks. For this reason, Ephesians 3, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ And to know this love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all history forever and ever. Amen. So back to my opening illustration from the movie Gravity, how wonderful it was with this church so persecuted and harassed, they knew that somebody was praying for them. This is the prayer that Paul said, I'm praying for you, a persecuted church. If you want to divide the prayer into sort of an outline, it could be something like this. Paul prays that they would be strengthened with the Spirit's power, yielded to Christ's will, awed by God's love. And fill with God's fullness. So if you want an outline, there's an outline. But I'm not really, I have trouble outlining Paul's prayers. Like, I don't even know if you should. I mean, I, it, to me, I'm like, I can't imagine at the end of my, at the end of the sermon today, we're going to <clears throat> evaluate Dan's prayer that he just prayed. Take it away, our prayer correspondent, Ronnie Marmel. Well, thanks, Dean, and good morning. In the introduction of Dan's prayer, he seemed to be focusing on the omniscience of God, but then moved into the omnipotence of God. Initially, it seemed as if he were going to focus on God's justice, but then put more emphasis on God's kindness. His prayer was composed of 219 words, making up 44, 14 different sentences. For the most part, the prayer was linary in thought, but toward the end, he retraced some thoughts he did at the beginning. It just seems wrong to analyze somebody's prayer. So if you're an outline person, there's an outline. But what I want you to do is just dive into the prayer. Get lost in the prayer. Let the prayer explode and saturate all over you and delight in the prayer 
and just come upon each phrase one at a time. The first one being, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. For this reason means he's telling you why I'm about to pray this prayer, and we don't have time to really completely look at what we just did over the past two weeks, but he said, I'm praying this prayer because I want the mission of God to be completed through you, and the mission of God is so all of the nations will stream into the kingdom of God. Jews in Israel coming to Christ, Gentiles, all the nations outside of Israel coming to Christ, I'm praying that the nations would stream into the kingdom of God through the faithful witness of this church. Then, so that's, that's why he's praying for that. I'm praying because I don't want you to miss your mission. And then he says, I'm also praying because demons are oppressing and angels are assisting in this mission. So you're being <clears throat> harassed by demons. You're being helped by angels to complete this mission. And in front of all of the power of God, all of the angels of God, I'm praying that you would be able to faithfully complete your mission. And the reason he, he said that is because <clears throat> he's writing from a Roman prison cell and he's suffering. And so he knows that he's experiencing suffering because of this mission, the advance of the gospel from here to India to Iraq to China, inner city, those who are down and out, up and out, universities, industry, homes, neighborhoods, the advance of the gospel is going to cost you. And he's saying, I don't want you to quit on God. So I'm praying for you to complete your mission. <clears throat> and Paul goes on and says, for this reason, for the completion of this mission, Ephesians 3, 1 through 13, I'm kneeling before the Father from whom every family in heaven gets its name. Why does he say that? Every family in heaven from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Some people are, are frightened that Paul would use this because they think he's leaning toward universalism, saying everybody gets in the kingdom. Well, that's just ridiculous because Paul would never say something that he didn't say elsewhere. And he said repeatedly, there's only one way to come to God, and that is through the Son of God who bled for your sins. So he's not saying that everybody belongs to God the Father here. What he's saying is, everybody on earth, every power in heaven, every civilization on earth exists because of the authority of God in heaven. Nothing moves, nothing has its being, nothing is living unless God, who has all the authority in heaven and all the authority on earth, says move. Another reason he says every power or every family in heaven on earth. It's just a reminder of what God wants again. He wants his kingdom to be composed of people from every family on earth. That's what he's after. From all the villages. Just imagine all the 500,000 unreached villages in India today. God wants families from those villages to come into his kingdom. That's why he prays every family in heaven and on earth. My broken heart over COVID-19 is this. 
I think we have been so focused on what's going on in the United States, our lockdown, our social distancing, that we have forgotten of the greater agony that's occurring in the earth among the poor. For us, many, most, COVID-19 means I must wear a mask when I go grocery shopping to buy my ground beef that I'm going to come home and cook on my grill for my family that I'm really enjoying in these days. And I don't like having to wear my mask. In India, you have day laborers whose lockdown means they cannot work. They work every day for that day's food. They don't have savings. They don't make enough to save. And there is no government that comes and prints $6 trillion of make-believe money so you can get $4,000 in tax relief. They're starving. And I have praised God for ministries like Silk Road Catalyst out of this church and and for Ronnie and the Hope Point Missions team giving thousands of dollars for the sake of the poor in third world countries, especially India, during this time for the dispensing of water and food and, and, of course, the gospel. I just beg you that out of your own personal anguish, you would daily cry for the world, the families, the families that God wants to bring from all of the earth. Paul begins by saying, for this reason, that you would complete your mission when it's a hard thing to complete your mission. It's a hard thing to stay focused on the mission, isn't it? So hard to stay. He said, I'm kneeling for you to complete your mission. He is so grieved over the possibility of the church checking out that it drives him to his knees. Oh God, don't let them quit. That's what's happening here in Ephesians 3, verse 14. I'm kneeling because this mission will never be accomplished without spiritual power from God. Kneeling is not something that Jews did frequently. They pray standing up. You can look at the Wailing Wall today in Jerusalem as as the men gather at the western gate and with their faces against those large bricks, they are standing, not kneeling. It was only in dire cases did someone kneel as a Jew, such as when King Solomon completed the building of the tabernacle. We see him in 2 Chronicles 6 kneeling, begging God to fill the building with power. Because if not, it was just a building. So when situations got really rough, really dire, it would drive a Jew to pray on his knees. And that's what Paul said is happening to him. If there has never been any reality that was so magnificent that it drove you to your knees, you have learned to live your life with your eyes closed to reality. I'm not advocating that you have to pray in a certain position at all times, but if the great realities of the world and the kingdom of God never drive you to your knees, you're just walking around with your eyes closed. There are some things that are so massive, some joyful, some oppressive, 
You just want to show God by your body posture, I need to show you. I'm crying out to you, God. And you drop to your knees. There's an interesting statue in uh, the uh, National Archive in Washington, D.C., of Abraham Lincoln. It's the only statue of him in existence. Plenty of artwork, plenty of paintings, but no statues. It's very interesting. It's, um, it was crafted by <clears throat> Herbert Houck. Uh, the statue is made of bronze, only 38 inches tall. And <clears throat> he crafted it because of a story that his grandfather told him, who served with Lincoln and saw Lincoln as he was surveying all of the dead bodies at Gettysburg. And saw Lincoln on that battlefield drop to his knees in anguish. And it's not just that story alone that we knew that Lincoln was a man of great prayer throughout the Civil War. This is how Lincoln described the weight of him to be president during a time of pandemic. I have been driven many times upon my knees by the overwhelming conviction I had nowhere else to go. So I guess my question to you today is, what are you kneeling before as you face the crises every day? What God, what power, what hope causes you to kneel and to say, that's my hope. I'm looking to that power to save me in my crisis. So that sort of is a good introduction to this prayer in Ephesians 3. And now we want to look maybe at just a couple verses this week at really the heart and the meat of the prayer. Paul says in Ephesians 3.16, and I just, let me just throw one interesting feature to you here. I just love this. Paul actually tried to begin praying this in Ephesians 3.1. You can see the same words. For this reason, I. So he starts praying this in verse 1 of Ephesians 3 and gets totally sidetracked on a holy rabbit trail of the mission of God that we talked about over the past two weeks. After he spends 13 weeks chasing that about the, the worldwide, global, and the cosmic mission of God, then finally in verse 14, he comes back to his verse 1 intent, for this reason I, Paul, and then begins his prayer. Just beautiful how his mind was so big. He gets lost in thought of what God was doing. So, but he starts praying. And this is his prayer that he wanted to get to in verse 1. I pray that out of the his glorious riches, God may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I love how even in this one verse, the glorious Trinity, God, one God, three in one, is mentioned in these two verses. You'll never see the word Trinity Mentioned in Scripture, you just see him described all over Scripture. God the Father has the riches and strengthens us by his Spirit so that we will enjoy Christ. Father, Son, and Spirit, all in one verse. So you should be encouraged today. You should have every reason to hope today 
You have every reason to be filled with hope. God is for you, the Spirit is for you, and Christ is for you. You should be walking with hope today. God the Father is for you, the Spirit is for you, and Christ is for you. What did Paul pray for today? He said, I pray that this triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, would strengthen you. So why do you pray for their strength? Because they're weak. Once you tap into an understanding of your own weakness, you'll really pray for other people with vigor. They're weak. I don't know if there's a verse that, and it's a verse that all of us share as human beings. Job 5, 7. Man is born to trouble as surely as the sparks fly upward. You go light a campfire tonight. As soon as you get those flames going, the sparks begin to ascend in mass skyward. You light a fire, sparks go, a baby's born, trouble comes to that child. You live on earth, you just face weakness. Difficult marriages all over this church. Financial hardships all over this city. Diseased bodies all over the world. Temptation to doubt and despair. And then for believers, trials that are unique to us. Just wanting to quit on the mission. I mean, some of you that are watching today, you are thinking when the doors open, will I come back? Or is this a time, am I just getting farther and farther away? It's so easy to, to let weariness convince you to quit. And look how Paul prays for their, with confidence for their strength. I pray that out of his glorious riches, God would strengthen his church. Now he just told us that God has all the have all the power in heaven and earth. That's how he began, the God of heaven and earth. So if you own all the power in heaven and all the power on earth, I would say that's a good definition that you're rich. And so he says out of God's riches he wants to strengthen you out of his riches. He's not a reluctant God. He's able and willing to strengthen you in the midst of your temptation. And he wants to strengthen you with power. Know what Paul didn't say. Right here, he's going to pray for their knowledge later in the text. Not today, next week. He's not praying for knowledge now. Because Christianity is not a, just a knowledge religion. It's a power religion. The devil knows more knowledge than I will ever in a thousand lifetimes. He knows everything that Augustine ever wrote, Spurgeon ever preached, Jonathan Edwards ever wrote about. He knows all of that. And the devil has not one grain of sand of spiritual power and love for the Lord. So Paul is saying, I don't want you to just have knowledge. I want you to have power. The power of Jesus Christ in your life. 
You know, it doesn't make sense when you look at the life of Christ. You look at the lovely, beautiful life of Christ and you see him in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you see Jesus, the power of Jesus and say, I follow him. I follow this one who had so much power and yet I don't have power. That makes no sense to me. I follow a Christ of power, but I don't have power. He doesn't want that for your life. I was counseling someone in my office this week, and we were both admitting how our bodies lie to us, how our addictions lie to us and say, I cannot overcome this addiction. Lie. Because Jesus said, Paul said, if you want power, ask for it. It's yours to overcome every addiction. Look how Jesus, the promise Jesus made. Luke eleven thirteen. if you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. So this week, I drove down to Columbia, remulched my daughter's beds, pressure washed her house, painted her shutters, and I'm evil. But I know if I am evil, I'm a sinner, and I know how to give good gifts to my daughter, how much more, argument from the lesser to the greater, how much more will your Father in heaven give the power of the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So I want to tell you today, if you're not experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm guessing you're not asking for the power of the Holy Spirit. Because that's a promise. That's a promise. So your spiritual weakness is not on God, it's on you. That's a promise. Ephesians 3 is a promise. You want power? God is rich in power. When is the last time you have cried out for a new power of the Holy Spirit to help you with your addictions? He'll do it. The Bible says it, and I've experienced it, and many in this church have experienced it. Look how Paul wants this power to be worked out in their life. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through the Holy Spirit. Just saw that Luke 11. Why? <clears throat> this is like, this is right, this is like just the happiest word in the Bible to my co-teacher, Dan. You give him a so that, and he goes crazy because it always, it always answers why. It's called a henna clause in Greek. It's translated so that. Why all this power? So that. Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. In other words, there's always a purpose that God is working in your life. I mean, it's like God just doesn't give us power for entertainment. There's a purpose for the release of his power. There's a so that. And the so that is that Christ would dwell in your hearts through Christ. Well, what's he mean by that? Christ dwelling in your heart. I thought he's in my heart. You should say that when you read that. God, do. I mean, I read the Bible all my life. Every, 
I read that and go, what do you mean dwell in my heart? He's in my heart. When I was nine years old, I walked down the aisle, and I asked Reverend Ledbetter to lead me in a prayer. I asked Jesus in my heart, and my mom and dad were so happy with me that they took me to Mitchell's Grocery and bought me a grape slushie after church that night. I remember that. I asked him in my heart. And Paul celebrates that throughout the book of Ephesians. You were dead in your sins. Christ brought you to life. And even put one foot of yours already in heaven. Ephesians 2. Beautiful. I mean, you're already halfway sitting at the banquet table in heaven. Just got to get the other foot there. So you already have Christ in your heart. What does he mean? Well, the word dwell in Ephesians 2.17, it really means so that Christ may dwell It's an interesting word. It means to take up residence fully. Lisa and I had a guest come by our house last two weeks ago. Um, And we so loved her. She came in one night. We so loved hosting her. She came in one night at 8.30, driving from D.C. on the way down to Alabama. She came in and needed to leave early the next day. So she came in at 8.30 that night and got up and left by 7 o'clock the next morning. The one thing that she didn't say when she left was, would you mind if I take possession of your house? Redecorate everything. We would have likely told her no, because she's a guest. We own it. She's a guest. This is what Paul is getting at. He's not interested in being a guest in our house. No one-night visits by Jesus. He wants you to transfer the deed of your house to him, and he's taken over. And he wants to remove all the old gold, ugly, flowery wallpaper. Unless you like that, then it's beautiful. But if you got some of that yellow, goldy stuff from the 70s, it's probably coming down. And whatever else Jesus finds unattractive in your heart, he wants to move in. He's the owner, and he wants to take full residence of every room in your house. That's what it means for Jesus to dwell, for you to give him the key to every room in your heart. Sort of, Jesus sort of told us this himself in John chapter 14. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. So as we continually yield our life to Jesus through increasing obedience, which is possible, increasing obedience, as you increasingly obey him, as he increasingly reveals what he wants from your life, my Father will love them. And we will come, how about in the glorious, my father, my father and Christ, we will come to them and make our home with them. That's dwelling. The increasing intimacy by Jesus and the Father and the Spirit coming and moving in more and more rooms in your heart. Linsky says it this way, Christ takes possession of us in ever-increasing degree. You might ask me, is it possible to be fully surrendered to the Lord? Maybe for a second now. 
But tomorrow, he's going to reveal something new to you in your Bible reading or, or, or you're talking with somebody. And then he'll ask for more. Another area. And then the next day, another area. So ever-increasing is how Jesus moves into new rooms and new places in your heart. And if you ever hear somebody using big, giant theological word called sanctification, that's the definition of it. The ever-increasing movement of Jesus into all areas of your life. And it's, 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 it's just the way he operates. Lisa and I have been living in our house 20 years, and I, I, every year Lisa comes up with a new project, a new room. I mean, the old one was fine, but new painting or a new something. And this is the way Jesus works in our life. There's, he always wants to thrill us with something new that we can experience with him together. Let me ask you a question. Are you increasingly opening new rooms in your life for Jesus to enter and to clean and to renovate? Or are you continuing to keep a few rooms closed to him? I was asked a question uh, a few weeks ago. Why over the past 10 years have we seen an alarming rate of Christian leaders at the, the top of their, their fruitfulness and at the, the top of their ministry, they're, they're on the comfort circuit. They write very well and are prolific authors. They're great visionaries always leading the way in church growth. And yet so many of them, one after another, surprise us, shock us, sadness by falling away from the Lord. You say, somebody's asking, how is that possible? And my only answer to that is I think probably at some point in their life, they begin to live what I call a compartmentalized Christianity. And that is their, their speaking life was given to the Lord, their writing life was given to the Lord, their leadership life was given to the Lord, but there was a door locked in their heart. And there was a powerful dark force behind that door. And you do that long enough, and I guarantee you that force is going to find a way to bust that door down. And bring ruin to your life. Compartmentalized Christianity is how many people live. Jesus is Lord of most of the rooms in my life. That's not biblical Christianity. He wants to move in increasingly into every sphere of your life. So how do you become, I'll close with this, how do you become increasingly surrendered to the Lord? That's the, that's the great question of life. Because people that I counsel... I've played this game before where I feel like I couldn't do it. I could not surrender any more to the Lord. How do you become increasingly surrendered to the Lord? Life is hard. Addictions are hard. How do you do it? Paul gives us the answer at the end of verse 17. Well, let me just read this. I must have forgot this along the way. God wants to so work in your life that your entire body becomes a suitable place for the king of creation to live. God wants to so work in your life that your entire body becomes a suitable place for the king of creation to live. So how does that happen? How do you give the king more and more heirs of your life? Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through 
Faith. What does that mean? Is you have to learn to look more and more at Jesus and less and less at you and less and less at your circumstances. I am reading a book right now uh, with a man. I'm meeting with him every week. We're having a tremendous time watching Jesus Christ rebuild his life and rebuild his marriage. And out of all the things that we have uh, rejoiced over in the book, it's probably this one phrase because it's the key to being free from all the things that bind you. And uh, it's a quote by Robert Murray McShane, a Scottish pastor who lived from 1813 to 1843, only 30 years. It's amazing, such a young life, and yet such a huge impact in many areas, but especially with this one statement that we have been using in the church and has been used in this book that we are looking at. It's what McShane says. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Don't spend your life looking at how you're going to fail because of the power of this addiction. Don't spend your life thinking about failure. Don't spend your life looking around at the circumstances that are going to doom you. My heart breaks for all the business owners right now that are looking at the unbelievable odds of either staying closed for another few weeks or trying to reopen and wondering if their clientele will remember where they were. (laughs) And so sure, yes, admit that these are difficult things you're facing, but don't look at them ten times and look at Jesus once. Turn it around. And for every one time you look at your problems, you look ten times at Jesus. Listen to ten songs. Read ten verses of Scripture. Memorize ten verses of Scripture. If you have a dark and dirty room in your life that you've never opened to the Lord and you think, how can I do it? It's so so dirty in there. The answer for light coming into that room, how do I turn the light on in that room? How do I make that room clean for Jesus? You don't. You just look at Christ and you look at him at the beginning of every day and you look at him and he will bust down that door and he will turn on the light and he will bring his purity into a room that's presently filled with darkness. So in closing today, what does it mean to live by faith? It means for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege today of looking at Jesus. We look at him in his life, working with his father in the carpenter shop, working with excellence and skill, obeying his parents, honoring them, and then on a certain day at age 30, leaving home, beginning that three-year itinerant mission throughout Judea and Galilee, preaching in all the villages, healing the sick, 
preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, calling men and women and young people to repentance, and telling a hopeless world among the poor, among the downcast, among those who were oppressed by their government, forsaken, forgotten by society, people at the end of the road that no one visited, wrong side of the highway, those who had nothing to bring to him, the very ones he went after. Oh, we love to look at Jesus holding children in his lap, teaching them stories, extending kindness to a prostitute, extending forgiveness to a cruel Roman soldier. Oh, how we love to look at Jesus and listen to him teach with such wisdom that no one could trick him. And all were comforted by him. Oh, how we love to look at Jesus. Predicting his death, not running from it, running to it. Walking to Jerusalem with the intention of dying, giving his body on the cross for our sins. Oh, how we love looking at Jesus. His eyes on the cross, not condemning us, but loving us. Oh, how we love to look at Jesus. His body laid in a tomb. How hopeless and dim it looked. And on the third day, how we love to look at Jesus. The stone was rolled away. The Son of God emerged. And hope radiated to the whole world. Oh, how we love to look at Jesus. Breathing His Holy Spirit on the disciples. Promising them peace and power. And for 2,000 years and 21 centuries, oh, how we love to look at Jesus, sending his church out so that the nations would stream into the kingdom of God. May all look to Christ today, welcoming him into his heart, in their hearts, opening every room, admitting they can't do it, but looking to Christ knowing that he will turn on the light, he will bring in the purity. Oh, may they look at Christ and surrender and let him have their home. The key to bring joy to every room. In Christ's name I pray, amen.